Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Laurie Maffley-Kipp will present a marvelous work, Reading Mormonism in West Africa. That's today as a part of USU University Library's Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture Series. Maffley-Kipp's lecture will discuss how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints pamphlets, books, and other church materials circulated in West Africa two decades before official missionary work began, leading to a unique native Mormonism. Believers crafted churches from these bare materials and doctrinal interpretations during the 1960s and 1970s. That lecture is in the Newell and Jean Danes Concert Hall, 7 p.m. this evening. It's also be broadcast live on YouTube. You go to youtube.com slash USU Libraries. It's free and open to the public. And this year's Arrington Mormon History Lecture is sponsored by USU University Libraries, USU Religious Studies Program, and College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, Laurie Maffley-Kipp is Archer Alexander Distinguished Professor in the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. And her publications include American Scriptures, Anthology of Sacred Works, and Setting Down the Sacred Past, African American Race Histories. Um, I would love to talk about uh, those two books in addition to the topic for the lecture as we have time as we go along uh, today. So we welcome in uh, Laurie Maffley-Kipp. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Nice to be uh, in studio. Yes, with, yes uh, uh, live and in person. Kind of. I, I, I keep <laughs> wanting to say the, the as we wind down the pandemic, it seems to be keep going strong, but we're adapting, I guess, is what we we're are. doing. So, yeah. uh, including with the with the lectures back in person. I understand this one was uh, postponed from last year. Right, right. It was supposed to happen in September 2020, and yeah. um, I'm just glad we could hold off and do it. In person. Now we do it in yeah. person. Um, so you were uh, with several years at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel yes. Hill. Yes, 24 years, in yeah. fact. Um, yeah, that's where I started teaching. Then made the transition to Washington University. Uh, yes, in 2013. Yeah, yeah. Before we went out the air, you were reminding me or informing me, I didn't know this, uh, Leonard Arrington uh, went to University of North Carolina. He did, he did. And uh, yeah, there's a... he. he Studied economics, um, and I think he talked talked a bit uh, in some of his works on his time at North Carolina. But I was I was aware of his presence, the the uh, shadow of a giant in Mormon history when I was there. Yeah. So this is a tradition with us here at UPR. We uh, we interview the lecturer for the the Mormon history lecture uh, series, Leonard J. Arrington uh, uh, lecture. And uh, for people who aren't aware, uh, Leonard J. Arrington. Uh, is the uh, former Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints historian. Uh, his papers are housed at USU Special Collections and Archives. That's two sentences. Uh, maybe fill that out a little bit. Uh, who is Leonard Arrington? Uh, he was uh, a, the historian for the church. He started out as an economic historian, in fact, and uh, wrote, you know, long before I studied Mormon history, I read sort of his works on the economic history of Utah and Salt Lake, Um that are just sweeping um, work. Um, and he, he went on to become the church historian, um, 
spent you know a good chunk of time there um, bringing in lots of young scholars so he sort of launched what became known as the new mormon history at that time um, and really set the stage i think he was very he was just very forward looking in the way he thought about mormon history not just its past but its future and the directions he thought it needed to go he talked in uh, some of his informal works about the importance of international Mormonism and the growing importance of it, the importance of women's history. <clears throat> so he, uh, he was looking ahead and um, you know, had an eye out for all kinds of different ways of thinking about the history of the church. I want to get a, a little bit of a scope of your, uh, your work. I'm reading here on the, the website to Washington University. Uh, you, you just have a couple sentences here. My research and teaching focus on African-American religions, Mormonism, religion on the Pacific borderlands of the Americas, and issues of intercultural contact. So maybe flesh that out a little bit. What, yeah, it your, sounds your, kind of sprawling, your, your interest, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, um, you know, I can only, I guess, only explain it by talking about sort of the path I took through there, um, because it didn't, I didn't start out thinking I was going to be doing all those things. Um, I started out studying the history of the American West as a graduate student and was very interested in the fact that religion doesn't get talked about very much in westward movement in the 19th century. So um, the, the obvious place to look at that point was at missionaries, and I studied um, evangelical missionaries who followed gold miners out to California during the gold rush and tried to domesticate them and make sure that they were behaving themselves and building appropriate kinds of societies. But I think that just piqued my interest in what happens when different kinds of cultures meet up um, and when you have missionaries of all sorts, um, be they you know evangelical or later Mormon missionaries, who are struggling to translate a tradition, their own tradition, into different terms, what that looks like, and to try to get in, especially into the minds of the peoples that are being missionized, to understand what that tradition might have looked like to them and why they might have reacted to it in the ways that they did. Um, so I've looked for moments, I think, throughout my work. Um, now, the African-American piece may seem like an, a sort of aberration, although you know, African-Americans were Christianized, many of them were Christianized when they were um, enslaved and later free. Um, and so they were also sort of coping with, uh, you know, this uh, disruption of their cultures and trying to sort of piece together a new world and a new meaning in their lives based on the tools they had available to them. So I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by the creativity people use to try to recreate worlds around them. And we'll maybe get into, if we have time, get into it, uh, some of those things you just talked about. But let's let's jump into the uh, your lecture, A Marvelous Work, Reading Mormonism in West Africa. And you used the word in a press release, translation. It's interesting to see how people <laughs> translate not only yeah. text, but, you know, translate doctrine, etc. So what we're talking about is 1960s, 1970s, West Africa, Right. Right. And, um, of course, all over the world, you have missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but not in Africa, I think. Right? Not in South Africa, yes, okay. because there were white populations in South Africa. But you're right. Um, the, the church, uh, because of the ban on temple work for people of African descent, 
um, did not, you know, did not uh, sort of actively pursue missionary work in West Africa um, until after 1978. Um, But it was, there was a struggle there because they were getting letters and requests from West Africans for literature, for advice, for affiliation. um, And they were kind of ha- trying to interpret. You can see them struggling to interpret. And in fact, they were struggling to read what this meant, too. So my use of the term reading Mormonism is sort of a way of saying, on the one hand, church officials were trying to read between the lines of these letters to figure out what it was these people actually wanted um, or needed uh, and what they could provide for them. But also, what happens when these texts start circulating in West Africa? How is it that without missionaries, without actual people to tell you about a religious tradition, how you put together a faith and what that might look like? So, um, and of course, then after 1978, when when the priesthood ban is lifted, the church does come in and try to standardize those those religious traditions, but. Um, it's you know it's interesting what they encounter when they get there. So yeah. that's what I'm trying to talk about. Interesting. Maybe let's 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 talk a little bit more about that. So what kinds of materials were circulating? The, the, this, because these these weren't being circulated by official missionaries, right? Um, but but they're out there, right? Right. So yeah, what kinds of materials? They, they weren't being circulated by official missionaries, but probably the most um, energetic advocate of getting materials to them was a man named Lamar Williams in the missionary department um, in Salt Lake City. And because he was, these letters were being channeled to him. Someone was saying, do something about this. And he um, got very energized about um, sort of collecting um, pamphlets and boxes. He would send over 100-pound boxes of literature. He got remainders of, you know, leftover texts. But the texts that Interestingly, that the texts that I have seen people refer to um, when the first when missionaries come through, just uh, there are a few that you know pass through there in the early '60s. They talk about um, James Talmage's articles, the Articles of Faith. They talk about Legrand Richards' A Marvelous Work and a Wonder, which is so where I got my title because that really captivated me at first. That this this book. More than the Book of Mormon. I mean, there were more. <laughs> I, there's more mention of that work than the Book of Mormon itself. But also, Reader's Digest. There's one particular article that comes out in 1958 that the, on the Mormons that apparently several people mentioned as really having piqued their interest. Um, and the Improvement Era in the late 50s and 60s. So I sort of went back and looked at some of those and tried to imagine how it is that a West African might look at those documents. If you're trying to put together a religion based on that, and based on your biblical knowledge, because they were already, for the most part, Christian, um, how you piece that all together in the absence of missionaries. Um, so it's, it was a fun kind of project to just try to enter that world. Um, can you tell me about any specific people? That's, you know, th- this is an interesting phenomenon. You receive these materials, you become a believer, I would uh, uh, imagine, and and but you don't have the the the, 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 the official the apparatus. Yeah, yeah, you don't, and you don't, and they they wanted official, they wanted the authority, so they that they were asking in part they were asking for missionaries um, to come help them figure out how to do this well, um, but uh, pro- I would say uh, probably the one that is best known. Stateside is a man named Anthony Obina, 
uh, in Nigeria who was very well educated. Some of the first, um, you know, the first uh, converts, if you want to call them that, they weren't, again, they weren't joining an official church yet, um, were highly literate, highly educated. Um, when Ghana and then Nigeria gained independence around the same time, so this is all happening at a moment of dramatic sort of colonial sort of movement from colonial to post-colonial uh, independent African countries, they establish um, universal education, or at least the, the possibility of universal education in those countries. And But the education is still primarily um, sponsored by Roman Catholic churches or Methodists or Presbyterians. So they're being trained in kind of Western, you know, reading Western texts. So Anthony Obina talks about reading um, reading the Bible, I mean, that's sort of, sort of rock bottom of the basis of everything that he, he encounters. But then he, he describes having a, a dream where he met up with a man. I'm going I'm to tell this story in my lecture, so I don't want to give too much away now. But mm. um, met up with a man who, who asked him if he'd ever read John Bunyan's A Pilgrim's Progress. Mm. And, and he apparently replied, yeah, but not for a long time. I don't really remember what it was about. And the man tells him to reread it. Um, and that's sort of part of his vision that later then brings him to the church. Um, so it's it, it's this odd combination of texts that you wouldn't necessarily think, huh? Oh, that's Mormonism right there. Mm. You know? But um, people are you know sort of piecing this together in interesting kinds of ways. But those are the texts I, I think I've seen most often. So this is, this is a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, I imagine reading this quote unquote reading it from church headquarters must have been very. Interesting. These are not baptized members of the church, right? But you would have some concerns about an, an odd variant, right? Right. <laughs> of, I think of doctrine, etc., uh, sprouting, right? Yeah, I think you'd have lots of concerns. Um, in part because the church at by 1960, the church was really poised to. Uh, it was becoming a global church, and. So concerns about correlation, about standardizing the faith, were becoming more and more important. Plus, the church had spent the last, you know, most of the 20th century trying to establish its reputation as an American, a truly American church. I mean, ironically, given it's global, then it's, it's beginning, you know, to reach out globally. But it's a, trying to establish itself as legitimately an American church, as a, you know, alongside Presbyterians and Methodists and other folks. Um, so it wanted to be taken seriously, and it had worked very hard on that kind of public relations campaign. But part of that meant not having these, you know, these renegades going off in all directions. So there was a lot of concern, and church, I think church leadership was reading what was happening in West Africa through the lens of their own racial dilemma back home. So and and there was a lot of pressure around i mean george romney was running for governor in michigan around the same time and there was concern about they didn't want to send people to west africa because it might look like they were pandering to blacks back home so there were there were domestic political concerns that were shaping the way that they understood what was happening in west africa which is very different i think from the way the west africans were seeing it yeah interesting uh, always you know, international shaping domestic, domestic shaping yeah. international, right? That's that's always going on. Right. Um, tell me a little bit about the kind of the variations that were happening 
They didn't have official church leaders, and so they just had to do their best. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's hard uh, because a lot of, uh, although the leaders were literate, a lot of what um, gets reported out is through oral transmission. You know, they were, so rather than, because most of their congregants could not read English well, even though English was the official language in both countries, most people, uh, their native language was not English. They taught, they were taught English, but they were, they, if they learned much English at all, it was kind of sporadic and um, sort of not as uh, fluid as it might have otherwise been. So leaders would read aloud or would paraphrase the book of parts of the stories from the Book of Mormon, um, you know, and they could plug that into the stories they had already heard from the Bible and try to make sense of all of that together. But um, they were they would also incorporate their own traditions into this. So there was lots of dancing and singing and drumming and clapping. They were quite spirit-filled. Um, this is also a time when the charismatic and Pentecostal movement is really getting started in Africa in a big way. So most churches had some kind of um, enthu- more enthusiastic worship service, I suppose, than than the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints did. So that was one of the things that, that the church tried to standardize when they came in. They had to teach these people that that really wasn't the way to conduct worship services. So that's yeah. probably the biggest the biggest difference. Yeah. Do we have any reports of uh, folks who encountered these materials? Um, you know, were interested, but, but then, as others were, especially in the U.S., uh, you know, were discouraged by the ban on priesthood and, yeah, and temple. There are a few. There are a few, I think, who really place this in... Um, in line with um, what they saw as sort of uh, racism throughout the world. So there's, you know, one report of someone actually um, comparing it to apartheid in South Africa, someone else talking about um, uh, fascism in Germany, in you know, pre-war Germany. So uh, some people were very aware of uh, of the international context of of sort of racism and read the ban through that lens. Of course, most of the people that joined the movement didn't have those concerns. And in fact, um, even today, I, I, I well, a few years back, I was in Ghana and sat for three hours with a group of of seminary students and tried to press them uh, like about how they understood. Uh, the priesthood ban, you know, the history of the priesthood ban. And after I wasn't, I wasn't getting much response from them. And finally, one of them said, you know, that's America's problem. That's not our problem. We don't, we don't care. And I think that's not true for everyone. But for those people who joined the church, um, you know, I think their attitude mostly has been, well, you know, we are one of those peoples that we have our time. And now is our time. Mm. I, I heard that phrase over and over again. Now is our time. What came before doesn't matter, and what happened in the United States uh, politically is not our concern. Interesting, the, the, and you saw that with more than one person. So this is yes, this yes, is a, kind of a cultural of uh, influences of of their culture, I guess, and their their time, their history. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I think the whole history of slavery too um, doesn't is not interpreted the same way in West Africa as it is in the United States. There's a wonderful book by a woman named Sadia Hartman um, called "Lose Your Mother," and Sadia Hartman spent time. She's American, but she spent time in Ghana. Went for a year in Ghana, in Ghana, and really tried to f- 
to sort of suss this out and talk to people about what are your views of, you know, slavery. And, And she found a remarkable number of people who said, you know, the people that were enslaved were the losers, basically. We were the, you know, we were the winners. So she saw kind of class differences and very a very complicated understanding of their connection to those people in, you know, that they were the descendants of slaves. They weren't necessarily sort of saying, we are your kin, we are, um, we understand your plight, we feel badly, because some of them, you know, of course, were descended from people that sold those folks into slavery in the first place. So it's yeah. very complicated. Interesting, the assumptions we have. Yeah. I think we have assumptions here in the U.S. that everybody feels the same way. Right. You know, about slavery or whatever it might be, right? Right. And it's not to say that they thought slavery was good, but yeah. they just didn't see it as their problem um, yeah. anymore. You know, it had become the United States' problem. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it is it is uh, to try to see that through other lenses. I think for me, it's an, a great exercise in getting my me out of you know sort of my own assumptions about how the world works. Yeah. Um, so maybe to finish this up, and you know, leave the rest for your lecture, and people come to that <laughs> to get the get the stories and everything. Uh, so 1978, ban is lifted. Um, then I believe you know official folks from the. From the church come and uh, missionaries and such. What um, what was their attitude toward it? Were they surprised by the, these variations in this native Mormonism? Uh, were there problems? There, oh yeah, they were challenged by it for sure, uh, and it split churches. There were certainly a lot of uh, a lot of people who did not join the official church when they realized that it didn't allow them to worship the way they wanted to worship. Um, but two two big problems that I'll talk about that the church faced immediately. One, um, there were some churches that were uh, led by women in in uh, what were Ghanaian traditions and Nigerian traditions. Women could, le- women could be just as filled with the Spirit as men. And that creates some issues when there are powerful women who are in charge of hundreds of congregants um, who aren't happy with the idea that somehow they're going to be demoted from their leadership positions. So that's sort of one issue. The other issue is polygamy that comes up. It comes up early on, but it, it uh, really comes up when the church wants to establish itself officially because you can't have, you can't have polygamous families um, in you know, 1978 Mormonism. So they have to struggle with how how I mean, not unlike what happened in the church, you know, in the early 20th century when it stopped the practice of polygamy. How you separate families that are already in existence, um, you know, because you had a few, a few West Africans writing back to the United States saying, "Oh, polygamy is not allowed." Well, that I'll, I will take my first wife and all my children because they're mine. And separate from my other wives, and the church leaders are saying, "Well, no, 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 don't do that yet. You know, we've got to figure this out." But it's a, it's a, an honest challenge. Well, uh, yeah, I'll bet you a lot of people at church headquarters didn't expect to rerun the history <laughs> yeah. in Utah in the West. Yes, at, at, uh, during these times, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the dilemmas and the they thought you know, they were the over it, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Well, very interesting. Um, we'll take a break and move on to some other topics here, but the. Uh, the lecture is uh, titled A Marvelous Work, Reading Mormonism in West Africa. 
And we've been talking about uh, how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints pamphlets, books, and other church materials circulated in West Africa two decades before the official missionary work began, leading to a unique native Mormonism. And uh, that's going to be the topic of uh, Dr. Laurie Maffley-Kipp's presentation. It's the Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. And uh, that is this evening in the Newell and Jean Danes Concert Hall at 7 p.m. on the USU campus. Um, and if you're not within driving range of, of, of that, uh, no worries. It'll be broadcast live on YouTube, youtube.com slash USU Libraries. The lecture is free and open to the public. And we'll have more with Laurie Maffley-Kipp following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Cache Valley Parade of Homes, presenting the 2021 Home Tour October 7th through the 9th. Cache Valley Home Builders Association, serving the community and promoting ethical business practices in the home building business since 1973. Information at cvhba.com. Did you know that mental health therapy can be just as effective when delivered remotely rather than in person? Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, a common treatment for mental health challenges such as anxiety and depression, is being delivered through a web app to individuals with limited access to services. This online therapy is easy to access and low cost. Many of us are experiencing a strain on our mental health during this COVID-19 pandemic, and those online tools can help mental health to flourish and can target specific issues as well. When many in-person services have been suspended, remote delivery technology helps provide support to those who need it. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams, and uh, we are talking with Laurie Maffley Kipp. She is the Archer Alexander Distinguished Professor in the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, she will be presenting the Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture uh, this evening at 7 o'clock in the Danes Concert Hall on the USU campus. Uh, that will also be broadcast live at youtube.com slash USU Libraries. And uh, the title of the talk, A Marvelous Work, Reading Mormonism in West Africa. So, uh, Laurie Maffley, if we want to move on to uh, to some other things uh, that in your research, interesting things, I want to have you um, maybe tell me a little bit more about Gold Rush, the, the, you know, the Gold Rush Miners, and I didn't know this. You were telling me earlier in the program, the uh, I guess the missionaries, the church folks who came along with to, I guess, to make sure these folks had religion. Is that the? Yeah, and this was a big concern throughout Westward Settlement is what was going to happen on those western frontiers if you have a bunch of people sort of ru- running out west, setting up communities, and they don't have churches, right? Um, this is, and part of the concern comes out of the fact that the United States as a new nation does not have an established church. And it's the first nation in the world not to have an established church. And there was a lot of concern about 
whether the country could even survive without a common sort of moral basis. So a lot of these missionaries, uh, these were evangelicals, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, um, followed congregants westward to try to make sure that they were on the straight and narrow. And it was a particular concern um, in places like uh, Gold Rush, California, where populations, at least in the first few years, were overwhelmingly male. So there weren't women. And women at the time were seen to be um, a good moral influence on men who had a tendency to stray from the the proper path. So there were all kinds of reasons to worry about those communities. There were also lots of people coming in from all over the world, you know, Chinese, uh, Australians, Germans um, coming into California. So it's it's what one uh, historian has described. Uh, San Francisco was an instant city. You know, it rose up very, very quickly. And so the first ministers, yeah, were trying, you know, to encourage people not to gamble, not to drink, not to do all the things that men left to their own devices they thought might otherwise be doing. How did the 49ers, the, the minor, how do how do they react to this? Yeah, it's uh, it's that's an interesting question. Um I would say that they tried, you know, they were not unconcerned themselves about the states of their own souls. Um so they they uh, tried to sort of adhere to, you know, at least some basic moral sensibilities. They didn't have much time to go to church. I mean, that was th- that was what was difficult. They were most of them were economically um, pretty strapped. Um, gold mining, as it, as it turned out, was not the big money making um, enterprise that most of them thought it was going to be. So um, when that didn't work out, you know, they. Um, they, they were living in a very risk-taking kind of environment. And, yeah, steady church attendance was not a big piece of that for the most part. So it was hard. And the ministers talked a lot about how wayward they were and how awful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, and, but I try to point out you know, they weren't – again, it's not unlike what I am trying to do with sort of the West African Mormons, trying to see the world through through their lenses. What would this have looked like? Why did, were they making the choices they did? And I don't think they were immoral by any means. I think they just um, saw the, this time in California as sort of a – a time out of time, a time set off from the rest of their lives when they were just in, in it to make their money and go home. And when they went home, they, you know, everything would be different. So somehow they managed to justify it that way. Yeah. That's interesting. That That's an interesting mindset, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of them didn't go home, right? Yeah. I mean, some did. I mean, some they, did. But... Some did. Um, they intended to go home. But, um, yeah, some of them you know, ended up more women started coming in and some of them settled down and married. A lot of them did go home eventually, but not all. Yeah. I don't know. This is out, probably outside the scope of your book, but um, I wonder those who did go home, did, it, did, did that really play out? That this was an isolated incident in their life and they just kind of went back to their lives? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um I would say that it shaped them. It shaped their later lives. Um, it didn't necessarily define their later lives, though. I think they did sort of, it, that because it was so unlike any society that they lived in back home. It was utterly different. So they could sort of say, well, that's, you know, that's um, that was a different world. That was a different me Yeah. in a way. I want to talk about um, homegrown religions. 
you know, American-born <laughs> religions. Yeah. Uh, you know, a famous example, we've been talking about this, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, but uh, you uh, did an edited a book called American Scriptures, an anthology of sacred writings. And uh, this includes uh, Shakers, Christian scientists, um, and, and who else? What else? Uh, spiritualists. Um, yeah, uh, I, there's a, a excerpt from the Book of Mormon there. There's an excerpt from uh, James Brewster, who was uh, who broke off from the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints with his own rendition of Scripture uh, that he claimed to have found. Um, there are selections from the Women's Bible by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, and then there's a whole bunch of um, whole bunch. There's several. There, there are more that I didn't make it into the book, but uh, lives of Jesus that people e- either claim to have discovered or been given in ancient manuscript form. So there, are, I, and I, I was just fascinated by um, by the ways that things. Uh, Claim uh, claim authority, or how people claim authority for certain kinds of texts, and why other people accept that authority. Hmm. Uh, is there anything? I don't know. Is there, is there a through line? Anything unique about American grown religions? Yeah, people have asked me this question, and I I honestly don't know enough about other places to know for sure. But I do know that with the lack of a state church, it sort of gives free reign in the in 19th century America to uh, the flourishing and the publication of all kinds of new works. So it was both enhanced by the Industrial Revolution, which obviously is also affecting Europe and some other places at the time. Um, but it was, I think, fueled by the sense that anything goes when it comes to religious belief and practice. Yeah. Um, are, are there... Is there a text or two that has especially piqued your interest here, or maybe you hadn't known as well? Um, you know, the one that got me started down this road was was uh, the one by Lorenzo Dow Blackson, this self-educated Methodist, African-American Methodist, who penned this uh, very long um, book about the kingdoms of light and darkness, which is a really a tale, a sacred history from literally from the beginning of the origins of the universe to the end of the world, practically. I mean, it's very comprehensive. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages long. And it weaves sort of sacred history into American history, into the history of enslavement, and rolls it all into one long story. Um, Now, this was this ever a scripture? Not really to anyone but Lorenzo Dow Blackson, so I wouldn't call it, I think a scripture has to be something that's accepted by a community as well and authorized by a community. But um, it's a fascinating example of like what, what would have motivated someone you know, to spend his spare time writing this thing uh, in the first place. What, is, what purpose did that serve in his life? So I was fascinated by that. Um, again, not so much because it, it really wasn't a scripture, but it was an attempt to scripturalize, you know, to make, to sac- sacralize a certain form of history, and that had a particular power for him. Um, and then when I put that alongside the work I was starting to do on Mormonism, I started to think about some of the same issues there. How is it that people make make meaning now? Obviously, you know, people have different opinions about what authority led Joseph Smith Jr. to 
to write or translate that book, and I don't weigh in on that question. Um, nonetheless, when it when the book appeared, it had to be accepted by other people um, and had to be authorized as a as a scripture. And so I talk a little bit about why why that why that scripture works and why mm-hmm. Lorenzo de Blackson's scripture doesn't right. necessarily work the same way. So, uh, uh, tell me what. Yeah. Uh, what to, yeah. <laughs> well, I I think um, you know there wasn't there weren't communities of uh, of literate. African Americans, I think, who would have taken to Lorenzo de Blackson's text anyway. Um, there just wasn't the kind of the educational capacity in the antebellum era um, necessary for that. But um, the Book of Mormon was, it, it, for some people, it connected them to the Bible in profound ways, and they saw this as fitting into that text in ways they already recognized. In some ways, the, you know, Lorenzo Dow Blackson's work is actually a rewriting of the Bible more than a let's fit in the, you know, the missing pieces, um, whereas I think the Book of Mormon is effective for some people in part because it does fill in, it appears to fill in some things mm. and to make better sense of the Bible even uh, by virtue of filling that stuff in. Could you take an, another uh, example, just any if it comes to mind um, in, in, in the book, and maybe talk about how that filled a need for that community? Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess one one kind of example is there are some lives of Jesus in there um, that sort of become become textual or take on a life of their own for different communities in uh thereafter. And I think one of the needs that, that those serve <clears throat> is that, you know, what a big gap in biblical, the biblical story for many people was basically the first 30 years of Jesus's life. You know, he he's born, he's a baby, and all of a sudden he's 30 years old and going around, you know, in various parts of the Middle East. What happened in the middle? Well, you have several... Um, writers that claim to fill in that time period. One who goes off to, claims he went off to a monastery in Tibet and some ancient wise person there gave him this ancient manuscript that he brought back. And on it was a story of this life of Jesus. Well, Jesus actually went to India, you know, in in that time period and gained certain kinds of Eastern wisdom. So in the late 19th century, when people are getting very interested in the wisdom of Asian religions, it kind of fits in an interesting sort, a very different sort of way, right, to say, hmm, you know, Jesus was picking up on uh, some other kinds of religious currents, and that makes sense to me um, that this is a way of sort of uh, binding together things I've been thinking about in my life. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, so um, let's take another break. And uh, then we come back. I want to talk about uh, your book, uh, Setting Down the Sacred Past, African-American Race Histories. Very interesting. Uh, we're talking with Laurie uh, Mathley-Kipp. Uh, she <clears throat> is the Archer Alexander Distinguished Professor in the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, she is giving the Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. It's titled A Marvelous Work, Reading Mormonism in West Africa. That's... Um, uh, tonight, 7 o'clock, 
free and open to the public. It'll be in the Danes Concert Hall on the USU campus. You're welcome to come there. Or if you're not able to uh, come uh, in person, you can uh, view it live. We broadcast live at youtube.com slash USU Libraries. We'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you. And Explore Logan, Utah. Family fun October 14th through the 16th at the Fall Harvest Festival at the American West Heritage Center. Plus the Pumpkin Walk, Gardener's Market, and Haunted Downtown Ghost Tours. UPR's The Moth Storytelling Live is October 21st. Details at explorelogan.com. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we're diving into fall cookbook season. We're talking about some of our favorites coming out right now from a book on Chinese baking, a grocer's guide to Middle Eastern flavors, quick, easy, delicious ideas from a fermentation master, and a true food adventurer's guide. It's coming up on The Splendid Table from APM. Tune in Sunday at noon here on UPR. This week on This American Life. Everything that I see, I think of you, so I thought I could just talk to you as I see you. Instead of our normal kinds of stories, we bring you tapes that people made for each other. Like this one, which was sent to a woman in Italy by a guy who wanted to win her heart and get her to come to New York. You have to let me know if it's incredibly boring or if it's, uh, or if, if, if you like this. Tune in Saturday morning at 10 here on UPR. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking uh, this hour with uh, Laurie Mapley-Kipp, who is the Archer Alexander Distinguished Professor in the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, she's in Logan to give the Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. It's an annual lecture um, presented by the USU University Libraries. Uh, this year's lecture is also sponsored by uh, USU Religious Studies Program and College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And that is uh, tonight, 7 o'clock, in the Danes Concert Hall on the USU campus. It is free and open to the public. Uh, or you can uh, receive a live broadcast of that, youtube.com slash USU Libraries. And the lecture is titled, A Marvelous Work, Reading Mormonism in West Africa. So, uh, Larry Mafflekip, uh, last uh, few minutes here, we've got seven or eight minutes left. I uh, want to talk about your very interesting uh, book. Uh, I pulled up the synopsis here. This is uh, Setting Down the Sacred Past, African-American Race Histories. I just want to read a little blurb here. As early as the 1780s, African-Americans told stories that enabled them to survive and even thrive in the midst of unspeakable assault. Tracing previously unexplored narratives from the late 18th century to the 1920s, Larry Mafflekip brings to light an extraordinary trove of sweeping race histories that African Americans wove together out of racial and religious concerns. I guess the first question here is, uh, how did you come upon this topic? What got you interested in this? Probably, you know, digging through archives. That's usually the way I come up with ideas for books. Um, I, uh, you know, have long been interested in African American religious history. And just started coming across these early texts in, from 19th century texts, followed up by den- longer denominational histories later in the century that uh, seemed to me to be real retellings of American and sacred history uh, from the perspective of African-American Christians. 
So they were taking, you know, parts of the Bible or um, sort of stories from the Bible and weaving them together with their sort of own um, sort of situation in America. And they, they're they're both, on the one hand, they're sacred texts to them or they're sacred stories, but they are also a means of surviving, surviving a, a, a bad situation. Um, but I also became fascinated. I, I'm always interested in the technologies that allow people to, to create things like that. So how is it that that you know how is it that west africans piece together mormonism what are the pieces of the the technology that they're employing the same is true for african americans that they are learning to read and write for the first time um and they are using those they see those as very powerful tools not only to survive but to make political and religious statements about who they are and where they belong mm. Uh, tell me about some of the narratives. Yeah. For all of us, they're powerful. This was a lifeline for, for these people, sounds like. It was. Um, you know, they, they come in all all sort of forms and shapes. There were some um, written by women in particular that talk, that then weave in sort of women's, um, the important role of women in, and African-American women in particular. Um, there were denominational histories when African Americans first started to form their own independent denominations. They kind of retraced their own history and linked it to sort of this sacred past, to the biblical story. Um, there, or even earlier, though, the first sermons that I came across uh, in the early 1800s were uh, arguments against slavery that used sort of biblical sort of biblical images tied into the slave system. Um, so, uh, to, but to see those as narratives, not just as sort of complaints, not just as protests, but as something that had sort of a living, uh, sacred importance for the people that they sort of, it, it helped them form an identity. Yeah. Could you tell me about, uh, you know, pick a person? It's always nice pick to... Pick a person. Well, yeah. you know, pr- the most famous probably is Richard Allen, um, who was the first bishop and one of the founders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who shaped his own um, autobiography, but did, did um, in a number of ways, sort of wove his history and the history of his church into sort of a longer past, the longer American past, why, why we are the true Americans um, and we are the true Christians. It, they were saying both of those things at the same time. Um, so he's probably the most well-known, but I even think of someone like, at the end of the period, someone like um, W.E.B. Du Bois as re, sort of also recreating um, sort of histories that are counter-histories of sort of white American history. Yeah. This is, um, narratives um, tend to join people, right? It's yes. it's very important for a community. I assume it was this Absolutely. way here. Absolutely. No, it did. It's because, you know, these people, um, Africa, enslaved Africans, you know, had not, they were purposely uh, separated in coming to the colonies and then the United States um, so that they weren't, they tended not to be with people from their own language groups or cultures. So this is a way, providing these narratives is one way to recreate an African-American community in a new place. Yeah. Well, we're uh, reaching the uh, the end of the the hour. I'll just ask you what you what are you working on now? 
Well, I'm this this work on uh, West African Mormonism is part of a, a book about global Mormonism generally. Mm. So there's a chapter on West Africa, but I've also looked at Mormonism in the Pacific Islands, um, in New Zealand in particular, um, the Philippines, um, South America, uh, at different points in time to try to sort of uh, take soundings from around the world of what um, sort of how this history has played out. But it starts at the very beginning. It's, it starts by seeing Mormonism as a global church from the very beginning in interesting ways. So the 19th century story is a little different, I think, from sort of the traditional histories in that it focuses a lot on the immigrant experience, how Utah was filled with Europeans at the time. So it was already a global church in certain kinds of ways, um, but then shifts to post World War II to uh, a much more international context. Well, we'll look for that to, to come out. Someday it very, will, yes. Very good, yes. very good. <laughs> uh, Laurie Maffley-Kipp has been with us. Um, she is Archer Alexander Distinguished Professor in the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, she'll be giving the Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture that's sponsored by USU University Libraries, USU Religious Studies Program, and College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And it's titled, A Marvelous Work, Reading Mormonism in West Africa. And so that is uh, this evening, 7 o'clock, in the Newell and Jean Danes Concert Hall. Everyone is welcome, free and open to the public. If you can't uh, make the, uh, it, uh, the event in person, you can uh, uh, view it online. It's being broadcast live at youtube.com slash USU Libraries. Larry Maffley-Kip, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been great. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here. As we look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. The new moon has been hiding between the Earth and the Sun. That's what it is. It's a new moon. It returns to view this evening as a thin crescent, a sickle low in the western sky near bright Venus. And get some binoculars. Look for an extra treat with a colorful binary system in Scorpio that's right here. Looks like two atoms together. It's called Delta Scorpi, just to the left of Venus. It's many cultures, one sky. The moon and the stars are something we all have in common. Bella Luna is the original light in the night sky. As everyone from crickets playing their symphony to dolphins jumping into the moonlight, wolves and coyotes who raise their head and sing to the moon, the stars and the universe, the Earth's tides and all of Earth are grateful as well. Earth's moon and its ever-varying faces and phases. Creation stories the world over. As Luna captures our imagination and reflects in our eyes and moves the Earth's oceans and tides we celebrate. As we look further out in space, we see that the European and Japanese spacecraft Bepi Colombo has just completed the closest flyby of Mercury ever on October 1st. Zooming down and taking photos from 620 miles above the rocky crater surface, that's close. This flyby slows down Bepi Colombo in its orbit around the Sun using Mercury's gravity to pull it in. Five more such flybys will be performed before the spacecraft can finally enter orbit around the planet in 2025. Look for a photo of this on the Skywatcher site. Amazing events are taking place in our solar system, seemingly all at a synchronized time, from a strong aurora presence to China's moon rover's 1,000 days on the far side of the moon, from the Martian exploration to possibly finding yet another planet in the asteroid belt to fireballs visiting Earth. This from USA Today and Space.com. Less than one week after numerous people reported seeing a fireball across the east coast, another one was spotted blazing across the sky, bright enough to light the night sky blue. 
The American Meteor Society said they received at least 50 reports from people in Colorado, Wyoming, and New Mexico who saw the large fireball meteor streak across the sky toward the ground around 4.30 a.m. on Sunday. One resident of Evergreen, Colorado reported that the flash was so bright that it charged its solar-powered lights. If you want to see this one, folks, check out the link to the American Meteor Society for a video, photos, and resources for this segment. And winging back to the other side of our solar system in March 1930, Pluto was discovered by a farm boy from Kansas who built his own telescopes and made sketches of Mars and Jupiter, helping him land a job at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff. The announcement in March of 1930 of Pluto's discovery was a moment of excitement for both scientists and the public, let alone Clyde Tombaugh and the staff there at Lowell. Next week, we investigate further the discovery of Pluto and recent observations here and go into the asteroid belt to check out deep space objects and minor planets. Stay tuned. Feel the magic as we look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live at upr.org. This is Katie Swain, the Membership Director at UPR. Over the course of our fall member drive, we heard from hundreds of you and your generous donations raised more than $50,000. Thanks to your support, Utah Public Radio can build stronger content, air better programs, and dive deeper into the issues you need to know about. Even though we've ended the honor portion of our drive, we're still a little short of our ambitious $60,000 goal and currently need about $8,500 left to reach it. If you haven't made your donation yet, please give today at upr.org to help us get there. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSUFM, Logan. On the floor of a Florida cigar factory, a Leo Tolstoy novel is read out loud to the immigrant workers. He covered her face and shoulders with kisses. Inciting passions and jealousies with each new chapter. Jimmy Smith stars in Anna in the Tropics by Nilo Cruz. Next time on L.A. Theater Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour in healthy living, including this recipe for... Chipotle chicken mango salad. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Tune in Sunday afternoon at 1 here on Utah Public Radio.